Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Chris Kreider and our hockey club have come to terms on a seven-year deal. Robin Leonard going to uh, the Vegas Golden Knights. I would say that's a significant ad for the Vegas Golden Knights. It's going to be a six-year contract for Jean-Gabriel Pajot with the New York Islanders. There were discussions here in recent days uh, when he was still in Ottawa on an extension. I don't believe the Senators were prepared to go to that length of deal. I'm just coming here to uh, to give my 110 every day, and uh, hopefully I'll have that team to win. Uh, an incredible deadline day in the NHL. We welcome you to another edition of Our Line Starts. Liam McHugh, Scott Hartnell, Mike Johnson. It's funny, the sound there starts with Chris Kreider. Chris Kreider was the big fish. He goes absolutely nowhere, and the day didn't fizzle. Yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. You look at some of these numbers, 32 trades most ever on deadline day. 55 players moved. That ties the most ever. We're going to jump into this in a second, but we want to tell you what's on tap here in our line starts. We're going to talk, of course, about the trade deadline, the winners, the losers. We're going to get into the story of David Ayers. You know it by now. The Zamboni driver who (laughs) came out of the stands and helped Carolina win against his hometown Maple Leafs. Also, the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice, a conversation between Al Michaels and Mike Tirico that you don't want to miss. But let's bring it back to the deadline because this was nonstop. If you stepped away from a computer or your phone for like an hour you came back and there were like a page full of alerts big takeaway for you uh i like carolina carolina almost did the columbus blue jackets for me last year kind of going all in uh bringing a couple big defensemen uh vinnie trocek from florida panthers uh you know a couple guys went the other way but you know i like kind of what they did uh, just to solidify that that blue line function of injuries though dougie hamilton they never quite yep. replaced and brett pesci went down just this past weekend like we need some defensemen here their strength of their defense their system is played by having active mobile defensemen and you would think it'd be hard to get one let alone two but they went out and got brady shea as well as sammy Vaughton and one Play-off? rental one not are they a playoff team now well what I'm, they didn't I'm... do though what else happened on the weekend Goalies. They lost all their goalies. Yeah. And they, yeah. Didn't, they didn't choose to go get Robin Leonard or Corey Crawford or chase down Georgiev, who actually after what happened to the Rangers with Shostyorkin probably wasn't available. But they didn't address that, the most important position. So they're rolling the dice with their guys from the minors. But do they even need one with David Ayers? He comes in and <laughs> yeah. they play the best, best third period well, of the Well, they play uh, like that. Like they played against Toronto with a third period. You know, they don't need much from their goaltending. But it's still you're rolling the dice a little bit on the Delkovich. And Anton Forsberg. And it felt like the price for uh, Leonard was all that high. No. So you, you'd figure he, 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 if he would have been available, been looking. there might have been some financial implications. You're trying to get Robin Leonard to, to, to get under the cap. But, um, yeah, it's, I, I, it's hard not to like what they did. Both defensemen seem to fit there. Trocek's an upgrade on Eric Halla. He has term left on his contract. But, yeah, leaving the goaltending question unanswered. Although that's Carolina. How, long, how many years have they kind of had a goaltending question? On yeah. good teams. Well, and then last year they had to use both of them in the playoffs, and both guys at times performed brilliantly. Mm-hmm. But aside from Carolina, you look at the Metropolitan. Everybody was active, seemingly. Yeah. Everyone who was in the mix was active in some way. I'm curious what you guys think about what the Washington Capitals did in adding Ilya Kovalchuk. Well, I think the the guy's kind of second lease on life. When he went to um, Montreal, you know, things were down in the tubes, obviously, in L.A., but he comes to Montreal and, and looks like he's a kid, kid again, mm-hmm. you know, having fun, scoring goals, uh, being a big part of that offense, obviously playing on the top line, top minutes, power play. But that's the issue. Scott. Yeah. Is he going to get that in Washington? And how does his attitude, if he doesn't, how does that affect the group? So, you know, I think he, he knows why he's there and is to win a cup. So if he buys into what's going on, I think it's going to be a great move. But yeah. if it's if it's sour grapes then uh you know i want some more ice time things like that that might uh, might take the team down a little bit but that's just it like what role is he going to fill washington's a really good team so on the power play he's not going to play in his spot because that's where ovi plays yeah. and ovi <laughs> does it better you're than not, anyone not taking he's not going to be on the first power play practice on the second power play the first day even the seconds the right wingers you have tom wilson 
who's so good on that first line and very important. You have TJ Oshie, who's a clutch player and very important as well. So he's going to play on the third line with Lars Eller and Carl Haglin, Richard Ponick playing 12 minutes versus the 20 in Montreal. He's a guy who's a volume player. He always has been. He's always played a ton. I just, it's not that he didn't look good in Montreal, especially early, although he struggled yeah. a little bit more lately. It's just the fit in Montreal is so perfect because they needed what he's good at. Does Washington really need what he's good at? I, I don't know if it's as much kind of this romantic Ovi and him back together, and it's really <laughs> important to Alex Ovechkin to have his buddy for one run at it, which would be amazing, be fun to watch. I just, the fit, I don't know if it makes as much sense to me. I just wonder, I mean, the risk isn't great, right? Yeah. I mean, because if he doesn't perform and, let's say, you just decide to scratch him at some point, mm. you still have a team that's built to win. So is it one of these things where, hey, let's go out there, let's see if he can bring something, let's see if he can buy in, and if he doesn't, we don't actually need him. But Wash is in first, right? They have a good thing going. Yeah. So, as, you know, there is about upsetting the apple cart a little bit because somebody's going to get bumped down a line, off the, out of the lineup initially. So there will be a trickle-down effect if, uh, when he comes in there, even if he doesn't work out. Yes, you're right. doesn't cost him anything, no money. If he doesn't work out, you but can chemistry, play him. But chemistry is something to consider. Yeah, and, but the thing is, he's hungry for, for a Stanley Cup, right? And, and for his attitude to dip kind of, you know, how it was in L.A., I guess it would be, you know, obviously unfortunate for him, unfortunate for the guys. And I'm sure Ovi and and those guys will, you know, crack the whip on him and and have him in line uh, uh, to make sure that kind of off, you know, all that kind of stuff stays in line. So is there any team out there, though, that after deadline day you feel dramatically different about? Is there any team that you Hmm. just saw and you're like, wow, this team either did make moves And I feel a lot better about them. Or you're sitting there and you're like, how in the world could you not have done something to strengthen your team? Well, Pittsburgh, I like what they did. They yeah. get Patty Marlowe, another guy yeah. that's hungry, that can play up and down the lineup. And, you know, he's a team-first guy, obviously playing, you know, 22 seasons. He's, he's not a selfish guy. He's, he's a team-first guy. So, And obviously a few weeks ago they got Jason Zucker, who's a, a stud, lots, yeah. of, lots yeah. of term left, that uh, has been found some great chemistry with Sidney Crosby. So, you know, you look at the moves. Uh, Connor you know, Sheary going back there as well. Connor Sheary knows the system, knows yeah. the guys. So, so they, they have, they have a, a lot of different options. And I think one thing they might try to do is that, They've had Jared McCann playing on the wing because they've had so many injuries. And they've had Malkin and Crosby and trying to spot in four wingers. But they went out and got between Marlowe and Zucker and, and, and uh, Connor Sheary. Now they have more options. I think they might put Jared McCann back in the middle and then kind of have that one, two, three that they had when they won the Cups when, when it was Nick Benino down there on the third line. They kind of haven't had that with Bukestad's injury all year long. So I like what they've done. The guy is just one move. I guess it's two. But Vegas. Like, I know we love Marc-Andre Fleury. How do you not love him? Like, you love him. Yeah. He's not been him, as good as he has been this year. He's not played well. Vegas is the best team in the Pacific, but they haven't had good goaltending. Robin Leonard is a massive upgrade, and I think that move alone is significant for Vegas and their chances because they'll still play flurry. He'll get the starts. He'll, he'll you know, get the opportunity to go with it first. But we saw what happened in Pittsburgh was three years ago. Flurry started the playoffs. Matt Murray came in when needed. Yep. He took it all the way. Yep. It wouldn't stun me if that happened again. I think Robin Leonard's good enough that he can step on that team that's so much better than the Chicago team he was playing for. It surprised me that Vegas went after a goaltender, but I, I love that move. And then they had traded Cody Eakin up to Winnipeg, so they want Chandler Stevenson to play in the middle. They needed one more third-line winger. In comes Nick Cousins from Montreal. You know, Kind of a low-profile pickup. He's an effective player, plays with some edge. He's put up some goals here and there. Vegas was always scary to the teams of the Pacific. They got scary. Yeah, Martinez into the mix. And Martinez well, on the back I mean, end. He's solid. It just, yeah. And it just feels like the West is there. It, like it, it's, the Pacific it's specifically. The road well, out of the Pacific, the first two rounds. You're going to play whoever it's going to be, you know, whether it's Calgary in the first round, if you win the Pacific, and then you're going to have to play. Or Nashville. Scary yeah. team that's, that's underachieved the whole, the whole year. And yeah. uh, if their top guys can get it, go Talk on, about right? a team that's surprising they stood pat. I mean, Nashville, yeah. you know, they, 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 they are so committed to this group to win now, but they didn't do much of anything. They got Devin Shore and, and uh, traded Matter when, uh, you know, seventh team. Yeah, I'm away, not trying to be disrespectful. Like, nothing impactful yeah. guys in their roster. I mean, they're, they're scratching or sitting down in the middle of games. Their best players, Forsberg and Duchesne and, and Johansson. And, and, and I thought, I wonder if they wanted to go bigger and maybe try to mix it up more well, significantly. I, I kind of felt that way about Colorado as well. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that Colorado's a team that can look at the West and be like, we are a team that can easily 
make it to the Stanley. Not easily, but I mean, yeah. we should be thought of as a contender right now to dice. come out of, right? <laughs> yeah. So why not? I mean, you have young talent that I know they had in Mestikov, and that helps with depth. Yeah. But I felt like with cap room and with the talent they have right now, they could have gone for it, and yeah. they did not. What, but where do, you, where, do you, where do you go? Do they, where do they, what do they need the most? I mean, I think what they would have wanted was Chris Kreider. Yeah. And, and he, once he resigned, they're, they're, the one, the piece that fit the most was off the board. So do you chase throwing away first-rounders or Bowen Byram or Connor Timmons, one of their top prospects, to get Pajot? Like, I, I'm I pro- No. I'm saying no. Yeah. You don't. I think I, tr- I trust JT Comfort just as much as I trust the JG Pajot. I so. guess I know, but, I, but my thought is they're a lot closer to making it to yeah. the Stanley Cup final than, say, the Islanders. They are, but right? I think what I they're, mean, tra- they're hoping is they can and hang the in there. And potentially easier. They can hang in there and then get bodies back. And so when Kadri's going to come back in two or three weeks, Rantanino's supposed to come back around the start of the playoffs, start backfilling from their own guys and not rob their... Yeah. If anything, to me, the one thing I thought they might go was go get a goalie as well. With yeah. Grubauer, who was playing great out, they gave Francois the extension. You trust in Pavel Francois if it gets to the playoffs? I, it sounds like you're not. Well, I mean, I'd like a guy behind yeah. him. If Grubauer is not there, I'd li- I'll trust him. His numbers are great. His numbers have been good in the KHL and well, the Olympics. Like to, yeah, but I'd like, like a more – give me Corey yes, Crawford right. in behind him. Give me Craig Anderson. Give me Robin Leonard in behind him. Robin Leonard would have been a great fit there too because yeah. if it doesn't go well, if Grubauer is not quite healthy, you know, he's hurt his knee. So uh, that, that's, that would have been a good fit there. But uh, Joe's, Joe's playing the long game. He has all – the whole time Joe Sackey's He's yeah. been the GM there. Uh, one other thing. So Tampa Bay, obviously, you have last year where you have a record-setting season, then you're eliminated, swept out of the first round, and now you are the hottest team mm-hmm. since Christmas, and everyone has you on their radar, and they're very active, very aggressive at the deadline, but they give up a first-round pick for Barclay Goudreau. When <laughs> that news came down, and there was plenty of it, but was that one of those where you refreshed a couple of times on the screen? You're like, wait. Is that verified? Is that, is is that, that a verified account yeah, coming with that one? Yeah. You have to scratch your head, right? I mean – and I get that they're all in. So yep. at this point, they're not worried about the picks. And a first-round pick for them, it's, it's going second, to be it's a yeah, essentially pick. a second-round pick. But do you look at Tampa Bay and say, I look at this is a team that's one Barclay Goudreau away from winning the Stanley Cup? No, but for me, like you talked about earlier, is you bring in two guys now, Coleman and Goudreau, and two of the guys that have been there the whole year, they're out of the lineup yeah. and, it's, and it's guys that have battled hard yeah. you know guys that are obviously they're good players right you know do you put maroon out how good mm-hmm. has he been he's at yeah. that physical element you know do you scratch that guy to put the speed in so it's it's tricky when you get like that because then there's you know everyone's competing for spots which is a good thing but you have such a good team and you know why kind of add pieces that you almost have to put in now because right. it's a first rounder and yeah. you know it could kind of screw up with the room a little bit and, and i think it, it's another idea of the importance of money on this day because while Barkley Goodrow's had a nice year played higher in the lineup in San Jose because of Logan Couture's injuries than he otherwise would have what makes him valuable is the same thing that makes Blake Coleman valuable they're outperforming their contracts Barkley Goodrow signed next year at 900 Coleman signed at 1-8 that's what makes them worth a first rounder if they were signed for the three and a half they would deserve they'd be worth a third rounder but because they're paid they're underpaid and Tampa will need to sign Sorelli and Sergachev and Sharonak, and they won't have enough money. Someone's going to have to leave. If they can get value contracts in, it's even more important, not even just about this year, but for next year to have guys sign. So, you know, on the, on the surface, like Barkley, first rounder is supposed to be really valuable. And Barkley Goudreau, while I like him as a player and I know him as a guy, he's not a player you would usually associate being worth a first-round pick no matter where it is in the first round. But the contract, again, same like Blake Coleman, makes it more palatable for Tampa. And they are all, all in. Stamkos was talking. Dream come true having these guys are, you know, added to their roster. I think they felt they needed a little bit more jam. Yeah. You would, like, for coming out of Columbus last year, I still think the scars of Columbus are affecting what they're doing now. I think that's fair. But so you look at Tampa Bay and you look at Washington, you look at Pittsburgh, you look at the moves made around the league by some of the top teams, mm-hmm. and then you go to Boston, and not just deadline day, but all the moves that they made. Do you still do you have Boston as the team to beat in the NHL after you take into account all the moves that the teams have made throughout the league? Nope. No? No, only, I mean, I think they have a... Do you they, like, well, do you I like, like the, them? Let's start this well, one. Do you like the moves they why made? Why I say no is because they're going to have to play Tampa in the second round. And, it, that's a and I get that. Right? Like, it's it's so an easier pass sure. and all the rest of it. Uh, I like their moves. I mean, Andre Kasha is a guy who plays out in Anaheim. I don't think a lot of people know about him. He's been hurt a lot. When healthy, 
and I can't say this enough times, when healthy, he plays 40 games, 50 games, 60 games, 40 games. He's been hurt his entire time in the NHL. But when he's in the lineup, he's a really good five-on-five score. A very efficient score. Doesn't need to play in the power play. He'll get you 20-something goals. Playing in Anaheim, who haven't had, you know, a high-powered offense as of late. The fact that he can go into Boston, step right on the second line, David Krejci, Jake DeBrus. Boston's been searching for a second-line right winger for three years. Yep. They went and chased Charlie Coyle, Marcus Johansson last year to fill that role, and they did a good job of it. But they, now they have a guy who's younger with term. I really, really like him. If he's, if, on, if he's actually on the ice. If he's healthy. Yes. Um, I think he'll be a really good fit there. Uh, well, I let Tuka Rask hasn't lost at home in regulation all year long. Oh, and that's not bad. And they're, yeah. Yeah. they're going to have home ice? They're good. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, if they have home ice and they can get those wins and, and lock them in, it's obviously a heavy favorite. And, and you know, you say you're already guaranteed Tampa Bay in the second round. <laughs> Look what happened yeah, I, mean, last I, year. I think both those teams you know beat Toronto or Florida like handily. Well, I mean, I think East the, the nice so thing good. about those two teams right in that division, at least competing right now, is that they don't have to worry about playing each other in the first round. Right. It's not like I mean, Colorado, if you're first Dallas, or second, and St. Yeah. Louis. But, yeah. I mean, listen, this is the old Pittsburgh. Washington Capitals thing where for a few straight years you know you wanted to see them in the Eastern Conference final but you got them in the second round it's just the way it went yeah. I could do worse than Boston Tampa wash Pitt in the second round yeah this year could do a lot worse than that yeah if, if the if the seedings hold so try, I, try making predictions on the other side in the West I'm less, yeah. I'm less go, I need <laughs> to know who's gonna make the playoffs first <laughs> but I know I like I like what Boston did I mean they it was smart they freed up some money get rid of Denton Heinen they got to sign re-sign Tory Krug so uh, Richie comes in, physical guy, mm-hmm. typical Boston player, good defensively. Maybe no, not the best hands to produce offensively, but they won't ask him to. But they got guys that fit, and they wanted a guys top six fit. forward, and they got a top six forward. For who, term. Who I believe you, at this point, have said, if healthy. If, if, yeah, we'll yeah. just make sure that yes. that's out. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Obviously, the other big news that happened before the deadline was a fantastic story. David Ayers, Saturday night in Toronto, the Zamboni driver slash backup emergency <laughs> goaltender slash practice goalie for Can't the make Leafs this stuff up. has to come in the game for Carolina in Toronto because Reimer gets hurt, because Morazic gets hurt and then this 42 year old makes his nhl debut he looks like he can barely get his mask on no (laughs) his his face is filling it out so much he's smiling from year to year he's got the blue pads on he's got the blue mask on and though his team scores a goal the first two shots he faces in the game Mm -hmm. goal goal and it looks like it's going to be an absolute disaster eric hall comes over to him and says hey listen don't worry about it you can let up 10 goals we're just going to have fun here I'm just curious, when you saw this story, because not everybody saw it live, uh, your immediate reaction to this, Scott? Oh, it's just smiles ear to ear. And, you know, him it's coming off fast. the ice, he's great. <laughs> he's got the Hockey Night in Canada towel that, you know, some players, you know, 15 yeah. years you're trying to You're hoping to get that one interview to get it, exactly. All, you want, all I wanted to do, the first one I got, I was like, yes, you know, and I put it. Like, I made it. I still have it. It's in my, right by, uh, you know, my toiletries and everything. And, and you know, he gets it at 42 yeah. years old. And uh, I'm sure he'll have that hanging on the wall. But um, how can you not just be happy for this guy? He seems like the nicest man in the world. And mm-hmm. his wife's tweets uh, when he was. Going in, and uh, it was just she's freaking out, right? How could you not? Yeah, it was just too good, too good for TV. The story is unbelievable, and and you know, now he's going to Carolina, he's uh, sounding the siren, he's he's on the Today Show this morning, and and doing the late nights, yeah, it's just just great. I I was you when he first went in there, you were almost worried and scared when he went those first two and you're like oh no yeah like because this could go like <laughs> as excited was the art because it went this way I, I that second intermission I'm like oh no this is gonna beyond the fact that he works for the Leafs and he's got Marley's gear on oh, the God. rest of it which would be a bad optics and, for the, and the Carolina needs these points and, and, the, and it's an important it. game but yeah. what if he what if it went that way in the third yeah. what if he gave up 10 what if he gave up the score ended up 14 to 3 which it would not is not out of the question no of course not and, given what we saw in the second so I think I was I was rooting for him just that it didn't go terribly, that it wasn't just an awful experience for him, let alone Carolina and the standing to the league and everything else. But the other part of that game is you got to give Carolina so much. Like, that's as hard as I think I've ever seen a team play in the regular season to defend. That was like game seven. We're up by one. Like, we're not giving up anything. And, And that was impressive them. And Toronto, I'm from Toronto. It's been, an, it's been a rocky road oh, for a few days for them. <laughs> Just the heat they're taking. They're almost happy the deadline happened because it took a little attention away from the story because they were getting justifiably criticized for coming up way short. Well, because it could be two points that separate them. 
from the playoffs in the end. If they miss by one, they're thinking, exactly. we were down it's one. Gonna it's going to be too good. Came in against and denied us the playoffs. And the best part about the whole thing is the day after the game, he's back on the ice for an optional <laughs> skate. And he's got the guys with the Maple Leafs, with the Leafs yes. at their practice early. He probably did the rink. Put his gear on and then went out and played and stopped pucks Maybe for the six or seven guys. Put his gear on. But yeah, he might have had to. Quick change, got to get we, in the uh, We had him on our Sunday show, um, NHL yeah. and NBC, and it was right after he was on the ice with those guys. Yeah. And, you know, you know, it's the day after. He's already been asked about it a bunch of times. Did a whole bunch of media last night. He's on the ice. He's skating around with those guys. He said, oh, they were great. A couple of them hugged me. He still was just yeah. as happy, just as thrilled. Uh, he came on in his gear. Sweating, of course he didn't did. care. He's all pumped up, uh, and he, he had a couple of great lines. First off, uh, you know, Reimer goes down, and he's in now a room, and they're like, "All right, you got to at least get some gear and get yeah. ready." Uh, there's no TV, so he's now watching the game on his phone, not on TV. Just probably, watching, probably, probably yes. delayed. Probably hears the oh. reaction of the they hit. <laughs> he stepped away from so he never saw Morazic get hurt. Someone <laughs> texted him when he got back to the. He's like, you know, you got to you're going you're going in. And so here's a guy who's 42 years old. And let's face it, at what age? I mean, at some point, it's a dream of yours that you're yeah. going to get in a game. But you've gotten to 42. Yes. He last I played competitive hockey it to happen. five years ago in the senior men's competitive league in Canada at 37. You can say beer league. No, no, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like if, you, if you want to play in a good league, the best league in Canada yeah. at my age, I would play five years ago. Yeah. And generally in, in Toronto, they have the university kids. There's three universities in Toronto. Their goalies are generally the backup, emergency backups, but they were in their playoff weekend, so they weren't available. So, so it's, it's like the, the backup to the backups. Storm. The perfect oh, and it's storm. such a quirky rule. <laughs> oh, I great. mean, and it's so unique to hockey. I mean, I, I found it interesting that uh, you know after the game they had asked a bunch of the Hurricanes, you know, what were you thinking uh, after Ryman and Mrazek both yeah. got hurt? And Tara Vines like. We had no idea what's going on coming into yeah. the game. Uh, like we thought our equipment guy, because he's occasionally in net and stops some yeah. shots for us. Maybe he'd be in there. Do you like this? Because, I mean, I like it because I love the story. And yes. it obviously worked out, and there wasn't uh, an avalanche of goals scored against them. No one embarrassed themselves, yeah. except in some ways maybe the Maple Leafs right. in the third period. Uh, I love it. I think it's one of the unique things about sports, one of the great things about hockey. And I, I kind of hope they don't change it. But I could understand, because I'm sure Rod Brindamore did not share that he opinion. He wasn't looking too when happy the first when that, two goals yeah. went in, and he's thinking, oh, my God, are the playoffs slipping away based on this and he's a, strange and rule? to be fair, he's a Leaf employee. I mean, he works yes. for the other team. So at the very least, we probably need a provision saying you can't be an employee <laughs> of the team you're playing against. Um, listen, I'm team chaos as well. Like, I'm happy this happened. Yeah. Whether they score 15 against them or none, it's a great story either way. It's, it's a fun, unique element to the league. But I also get if I'm the owner, if I'm Ton Dundon, if I'm Rod Brindamore, and I'm, you know, making the playoffs is worth tens of millions of dollars. And we're going to miss because we have a guy who's in his 40s who's not really a good enough goalie playing i would have a problem with that so i don't know what the solution is whether it's a better standard of goalie available like he has to be within four years removed from playing college or junior or pro or something like that or if it's even a bigger change of saying each team can carry an eighty thousand dollar per year employee and that employee is your third goalie yeah and you can you can be as ever good as good as you want him to be it's your team's choice he can be, you're responsible for your own third guy, like you are in the playoffs, right? You travel three or four goalies in the playoffs. This would never happen in a playoff game. I can understand the sentiment of wanting to clean it up because if it, if it played out all the way down the line and Carolina did miss by one, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. But I'm Team Chaos, so I'm okay with it. Either way they go with it, I'm okay. Uh, well, if you, uh, well, in my second or third year, uh, Chris Mason got hurt in warm-up. Uh, so the backup, Brian Finley, was in, mm -hmm. and this was in warm-up, right? So Jamie Allison, defenseman, tough guy. Yeah, yeah. He, country musician, too. Yeah, he, yeah. Drew, he dressed up in uh, Chris Mason's gear and sat on the bench. Was he the seventh uh, defenseman he, not playing that seven, night? Seventh defenseman. So, wow. he, so he got a games played for the old pension, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Up to 400. Well, so. it's funny because I think that's what you know, fans of other sports see the story, and they say, well, listen, when you run out of pitchers... You know, yeah. Uh, goes in. Yeah, yeah, someone goes in, and it's <laughs> it's a little bit different, obviously, for many many reasons. Uh, but how many teams would even have somebody who most teams would be willing? No, most teams have a trainer or a video guy or someone on the staff that will slide in there. But they don't have a forward who's going to say not a oh, forward. No, Sid. I mean, or throw Sid Crosby. That's going to Sid Crosby thinks yeah. loves playing goalie. He's like the ball <laughs> hockey goalie extraordinaire. So he's too good to play out. But yeah, not many guys would have a player no. that would be. I you could, I wouldn't block a shot when I played. 
You couldn't, you couldn't pay me enough money to go in front of go on that and play goal. Not a chance. Well, I thought it was cool. Uh, papers up in Toronto called it uh, their mini miracle on ice, which was somewhat appropriate given that it was the 40th anniversary of the actual miracle on ice. And recently, Al Michaels, Mike Tirico sat down, had an amazing conversation and relived the moment. So the 1980 Olympics happens right on the heels of the 70s. In the 70s, you're coming off of Vietnam, unemployment, energy crisis, a very difficult time in America. Can you set this tone of the geopolitical setting with the United States and, not Russia, the Soviet Union at that point? It just wasn't a good time in this country. It didn't feel good. There were too many things that were going on. We were coming off, as you say, Vietnam. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. And because of that, we were threatening to boycott their Olympic Games to be held in July in Moscow, which, of course, we did, and they paid us back in 1984 by not coming to Los Angeles. There were gas lines. Um, our hostages were being held in Iran. The prime rate in this country, which is next to zero now, was something like 19%. You couldn't borrow money. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the president, and he was... Um, under fire from all quarters. Mm -hmm. The country needed a boost. The country needed something to get excited about. And of all crazy things, this was the thing. This was us, the kids, the amateurs, against the Soviets. And I have to laugh because they would all be listed their players as students or soldiers. <laughs> what they were were hockey players. They right. played hockey 11 months a year. And these, those guys were so good, they'd come over to North America, they'd beaten the NHL All-Stars. Right. They were probably the best team in the world, professional or amateur. And our guys had that one moment in time, that one moment in time, and that galvanized the country. And as Eddie Swift wrote in Sports Illustrated, uh, when he named them obviously the Sportsman of the Year, he said, you, it made you want to hug your television set. I mean, it was that good because look what they did, how they pulled this off, and everybody felt great. Can you give us a setting of Lake Placid? Uh, Lake Placid is uh, not a town that would host the Olympics in 2020 and beyond. Not the infrastructure. What was Lake Placid like? Very rural, only a couple of ways in and out. It's a hamlet more than anything else. There's a lake. Right. <laughs> uh, there were a couple of hotels. There was a main street. The, uh, some of the other events were held slightly outside of town, mm -hmm. the ski jumping and the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony. But it was, it was small, it was, it was intimate, mm -hmm. and you wondered how the world was going to come to Lake Placid. There was no room for the world right. <laughs> to come to Lake Placid. Right. So they pulled, they pulled this thing off. The building in which the hockey was played was about six or 7,000 seats. Mm -hmm had a balcony. Uh, I don't know how many people they jammed in for the, the, that game and the Finland game on uh, the following Sunday. It but sounds like it, it, would, it would qualify as a barn for it, hockey fans. It would be a barn for hockey fans. <laughs> and then a, right across the street was the high school. And the high school track was frozen over for the speed skating rink. You had hockey and figure skating here, speed skating across the street, a couple of other things going on. And then up in the mountains you had a, a few events. But uh, everybody got to know everybody during those Olympics because you're walking down the same street. <laughs> the arc of a magical run uh, always has unique stories at the beginning of it. And maybe even before the Olympics, it's when this U.S. team plays against the Soviet team in an exhibition at Madison Square Garden the weekend before the Games. And if you watch that, and I was a kid and so excited about this game, and realized that the Americans had no chance to win a gold medal or any medal after you watched that game. The final score was 10 to 3, Soviets. It felt like it was 20 to nothing. 10-3 <laughs> doesn't indicate to any extent the dominance of that game. And I had seen all of the Soviet games in that Izvestia tournament. They were so they were toying with teams. They were fooling around. There was, there was no it was no contest. If it was a fight, it would be referee stops contest at any point. And maybe the scores were, you know, 20 to nothing. They could have been 4-1, mm 5-1. -hmm. Never a doubt. Never. 
that the Soviets were going were gonna to win. And so that day, yeah, they destroyed the U.S. team. But then the U.S. team was able to rebound, come up to Lake Placid, and get that tie against Sweden. And that's the before game. the games really get started, right? Correct. That's the day before. So the, the Soviet game is the weekend before mm-hmm. at Madison Square Garden. Teams now come up. The Olympics were going to start on a Wednesday, but the Olympic, the first event was going to be hockey, right. which took place on Tuesday night. And that was the U.S.-Sweden game. And uh, I remember the next day we opened up the Olympics, the opening ceremony, a, a daytime ceremony, and Jim McKay was hosting it from the Lake Placid Horse Show grounds. I said, Jim, I'm glad you're saying that and not me. Welcome to the horse show grounds here. And he says, well, thanks. I really appreciate really appreciate you putting that in, uh, in, in my, my head. But uh, he brought me in right off the bat and said, hey, we've already got a big story here in the U.S. Uh, you know, it was, didn't figure to beat Sweden, but tied them. So they were off to a good start. And then as the tournament goes on, is there a game or a point where it goes from this is a nice story to this really has a chance to be something significant. You felt in short order that something big could happen because something big did happen. The night after the opening ceremony, the U.S. played Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia was the heavy favorite. They were the second best team in the world. And the Americans dominated the game and won the game 7-3. to three. So now you're going, well, wait a second. You tie Sweden. You didn't figure to do that. You dominate Czechoslovakia. You definitely didn't figure to do that. And now you're looking ahead and you got Norway, a team that you should beat. And then you've got Romania, a team that you don't know about, and West Germany. So now you're looking down the line going, can they get into the medal round? Not the semifinals, but you just had to finish first or second in your group right. to get to that final round. And sure enough, off they went. I want to detour from the game to talk about the team. Uh, It's a great reminder, 40-plus years removed, that amateurism and what the U.S. Olympic team's method of constituting the group is very different from what it is now. It was still that feel of amateurism compared to what the Soviet team was, which, as you said before, they were truly professionals. Well, when when I first started to follow the Olympics, they they were amateurs. They were. They weren't getting paid, uh, you thought. They certainly weren't doing any commercials. Right. Uh, they would get thrown out if somebody found that they were taking money. Yes. So they were, they were true amateurs. And that began to get blurred a little bit later on. And then, of course, with the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc, there was very little doubt that they were amateurs. They was, in fact, there was no doubt. They were, they were professionals. But for the U.S. team, it was almost as if they were like semi-pro at that point because they were college kids, right. but some guys had actually played a little bit of minor league hockey. Mm-hmm. But they were as close to being amateurs as you could be in 1980 and going up against the, the big red machine. You and Ken Dryden had probably the best access to Herb Brooks during the two weeks of the Olympics. What did you find as you had that rare window into what this now legendary figure was thinking? Well, I had access to Herb Brooks because Ken Dryden had access to Herb Brooks. Mm. And of course, Kenny's coming off that great career, had known Herb. Herb had tremendous respect for Ken. So on the off nights, Herb would come over to our hotel, which was down the block from the Olympic Village, and uh, have a couple of beers with us. And just listening to him and listening to Ken, and it was like, it's almost like Bill Belichick in a way. He wanted to keep the press and the outside world over here. On the inside, he was going to take care of the people that he respected and knew. And I think even in that particular case, with Herb Brooks, it might have been a case of he was going to learn some stuff from Ken Dryden. Interesting. Uh, about Ken Dryden you know, knew not just goaltending, right. he knew all of hockey. And I think that was part of it because they had some wonderful interplay uh, during those discussions. But it gave me, and obviously through Ken, the access. So we had, I knew a lot more than the media knew because 
Remember, in, in those years, you could pull it off where Brooks would go into the press conference. He wouldn't bring the players. He wouldn't want to bring them. You know, it was him, and that was it. And you know, it was like it's Belichick, right? Exactly. See you around. Sounds like it. See you around. Good night. You know, it's on to Romania. <laughs> Mike Ruzioni, uh, the captain, the goal that lives forever. Um, it's been so interesting to watch Mike through the years at charity events, wherever he is, because there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't get asked about it, and there's not a day that he doesn't appreciate. It seems Al what that moment was all about for him, for the country, and for the sport. One moment in time, one shot from, as they say in hockey, the slot. It goes in. It wins the game. And Mike's had a 40-year career from, from that moment. And it still goes on because it just elevated everything. It makes people feel good. You know, I've done a lot of events with him through the years. And we did an event in Phoenix about maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Okay. I think it was a General Mills event, and they had a number of speakers over a three- or four-day period. Right. And Bill Clinton had been there the day before. So we come in, we're there the next day, and people line up for autographs at the end of the event. And the guys were telling me from General Mills, four times as many people wanted a Ruzioni's <laughs> autograph than Bill Clinton. So that tells you, after all of those years... What it meant, Mike was, first of all, very funny, very engaging, full of life, uh, a Boston kid who just, he's, he's lived life to its fullest. Yeah, right, right. And he, he's the perfect guy to have done what he did because he's the one guy who can go out there and, and connect beautifully to the audience. He gets it, he's engaging. He'll talk to people around the clock. He's perfect. And with Mike, I mean, to me, one of my favorite stories, he told this to me 15, 20 years ago maybe. He said, you know, every once in a while I'll come home and maybe I'm a little down. So I'll put the tape in. <laughs> and the best thing about the tape, every time I shoot, the puck goes in. <laughs> and it's been going in for 40 years. <laughs> love that. I love that story. Yeah. So, if we ever talk about Hockey Day in America, there is one all-time Hockey Day in America. Anything stick out about that day itself before the game? Was there a buzz? Was there an energy? Was there an anticipation that was unique as you woke up that day? There was a buzz and there was an anticipation, but bearing no semblance to what we have now. Hmm. Because there was no internet. Cable television had just started. Right. Your window to the outside world in Lake Placid were the network affiliates in Plattsburgh, New York, and Burlington, Vermont. Newspapers, you had the Lake Placid Times, you couldn't find one, or whatever it was called, and you had the New York Times, which was in a box from the day before. And not really covering too much sports. USA Today didn't even no. exist. Cell phones didn't exist. So there was a buzz... But it, it couldn't be palpable. Like, now right. it would be insane right? because huh. of, of where we are technologically. Then it was different. You knew it was big, but you felt like you were in a cocoon. And you're living in that little cocoon, and you're up there in Lake Placid, New York. And, I mean, you can imagine what the rest of the country must feel, but you can't really get it fed back to you. So those guys would go back after the game that night, they can't turn on Sports Center. They can't. You know, they. Your go phones watch, aren't blowing you, up. You go. No, the phones aren't blowing up. There's no internet. You go watch. You know, the the local affiliate. You wait for the eleven o'clock news. Wow. And that's the feedback. And so it was so different. Uh, it, it's a time that can't exist. And when you think about where we've come in forty years, it's, it's frightening in a way. We, we should deal with the TV part of that too, because the game aired on tape delay. And in this day and age, we'd never have that kind of an impact. You pretty much didn't have to avoid media. It was hard to find the score or what happened if you were waiting for Jim McKay to come on at 8 o'clock. I'll never forget, I'm a kid in New York. I'm 13 years old at the point. And I'll never forget that when McKay came on, the studio had the background of yeah. the town. 
And that was the only hint you had that something was going on because that night when Jim came on to mm -hmm. introduce you and Kenny and throw it to the game, there was a little bit of a party going on back, and back behind him. You couldn't right. tell for sure, but that was the only hint. Other than that, you had no idea. Could have been a concert. Could have been right. any, any number of things. Exactly. You, you don't know. You, but it was hard to, to do it on tape delay. And one of the reasons it was done on tape delay is when the schedule came out before the Olympics, mm -hmm. you don't know who's playing who. You don't know who's going to get there. So it's going to be the second team from one group meeting the first team from the other group at 5 o'clock on Friday, which turns out to be the U.S. against the Soviets, which you kind of maybe see coming a couple of days before, but you don't know for sure until the end. So I know that Rune Arledge and the powers that be at ABC tried like crazy to get that game moved to 8 o'clock. Mm. And who knew, knew what was being offered and the whole thing? But it was my understanding years later, it was the Soviet Ice Hockey Federation that did not want to move the game. Whether they did it to you know, hurt us or hurt ratings, right. I don't know. Huh. Remember, they're our arch enemy at the time. Exactly. So I don't, to this day, I don't know why they did it, but they did. And they wouldn't let the game be moved to 8 o'clock. Let's talk about the game itself because it's 2-1 towards the end of the first period. And there are so many significant tent poles in the game when you tell the story of the actual game. But the goal right before the buzzer of the first period to tie the game, huge for the U.S. going into the locker room after the first. Mark Johnson, I mean, it just, it, and it happens out of nowhere. So it's 2-1. First of all, it's one nothing Soviets early. We tie the game. Then it's 2-1. And they're dominating the period. And then all of a sudden the puck comes out and Johnson is on a breakaway. And the, the clock doesn't tick down in tenths at that point. Right, so you're right. not sure <laughs> if, he, if it's good or what. But it, that was gigantic because it not only tied the game, it got the Soviet coach, Viktor Tikhanov, to take Tretiak, the best goalie in the world, out of the game, right. which we didn't know until the second period when you go, you see... Mushkin's in there? Yeah, right. What's he doing in there? Right. So, in, in those years, you don't, you don't have a sideline reporter. Or, right. You know, Pierre Maguire is not between the glass. <laughs> and you have no idea what's going on. Maybe sure. he's hurt. Maybe he's sick. Right. Turns out, Tikhanov was unhappy. <laughs> that was his punishment right. for Tretiak. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it was gigantic. But in the, in the second period, the Soviets did... The only scoring in the second period. They got the go-ahead goal. Right. They outshot the United States, something like sixteen-three. They dominated the second Do period. They dominated the whole game, right. Mike. And they until that little middle part of the third period, when it's three-two, and Johnson scores, and then Arruzioni scores at exactly the ten-minute mark. I look at that game and I think if you want to reduce it to numbers. Mm -hmm. The U.S. trailed three times. They came from behind and took the lead. So they overcame three deficits. They were outshot 39-16. to 16. How many games in the history of hockey, International National Hockey League, Bantam Peewee, <laughs> does a team get outshot 2.5 to 1 and come from behind three different times? It doesn't happen. And it made it all the better. So I know that you like the ponies. And I, one of you my heard? favorite quotes I've heard. <laughs> a, a little rascal has told me. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite quotes from you about calling the game um, goes back to the, the language of horse racing, that you had to have blinders on and keep your focus at the end of the game. Can you talk about what it was like in the building, on that rickety platform, in the truck, as four three, two, now we're down to the final minute of the game and you're trying to just call the game. Forget the call at the end. You're just trying to describe what's going on. It required enormous concentration because for the most part, the Soviets were dominating the game. So apart from the, the three times when the U.S. tied the game, you know, and you had this burst, but then the burst would uh, be softened by the fact that the Soviets began to dominate again. But then when Arusioni scores, now all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you got 10 minutes to go, and then there's, you know, eight and six, and all I know, now the building is crazy. Right. They're crazy, because it's like, what are we watching here? And the 
booth, the booth, the broadcast platform is shaking. I got a producer down in the truck who, and you know, if they want to, t- they want to talk to you, they press a key, and then they unpress it, right. depress it, so that you can hear the crowd. The guy, forget like t- 10 times, forgot to, 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 to press the key. So I'm going... Everybody's a fan at this point. Everybody's a fan. Yeah. And so I, I've got the crowd is insane. <laughs> the booth is shaking. Uh, you know, I've got the rickety monitor right here. I got the guy down in the truck screaming stuff. <laughs> I hear the whole truck. So it requires just stay in the stay in the game, stay there, call the game, and that was rudimentary play by play, pass to pass. What's going on? Very little anecdotal information. Very little color at that point. You know, Ken wasn't able to get in very often. At that, he understood the the situation as well, and. When the clock got down to, you know, a minute and a half, and I kept looking up at the clock, and I've always said the, the clock was in quicksand. You know, right. I'd look up, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm looking away, I'm calling the game. You know, it was at one thirty, and I want the clock to say, like, you know, 59 seconds. It says one I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> Didn't a half minute go by? Only seven <laughs> seconds went by. <laughs> so... Uh, and, so and then you get to the last minute of the game, and uh, and then the last thirty seconds are. It, it's wild because at that point, the Soviets are putting a lot of pressure lot. on the U.S. Yes, and Jim Craig is equal to the task every time. But I've got to focus on being careful. And I know at the end of the game, when I come up with the line, people said, "Did you think about it beforehand?" I said, "Number one." I didn't think the U.S. had a chance to win the game. Number two, how stupid would that have sounded as the Soviets tied the game with a shot with two seconds to go exactly. in the third barrier? Sure, exactly. <laughs> Just stayed in the game. And I was able to think of the word miraculous, morphed it into a question and answer only because the puck, with about six or seconds left, came out to center ice. And at that point, you knew it was over. So those six words, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Based off miraculous, which, as you said, came into your mind uh, as you were watching the end, how many times do you hear that as people see you, walk past you, 40 years later? A lot. <sighs> A lot, and it's great. And I know Michael Ruzioni hears it, and I know the players here too, yeah. which really is special to me to know that you know that they can tie that. And I know you know Mike has talked about it with me many times. He, barely a day goes by in his life where he doesn't hear it. You had no idea, right? Uh, zero. Big. People don't have tape machines in, in, in 1980. Right. I don't, you don't, you're not making a call for posterity. You're doing it for the moment. I had you know, no idea that technology is able to take us to the point where, you know, I've, I've heard it obviously hundreds of times now. I almost hear it now in the third person. I get it. I'm excited because I know what's going to happen, and I know what's going to be said. But it's like somebody else is doing this, and I'm just going to exult in what, what's happening. That's I mean, cool. this was just a great moment. I want to be a fan at that point, not inside of it. I want to be outside looking in. And, and it's, it's what the best thing about it is for me, Mike, is when people talk to me about it, they're joyous. They're joyous. And I love having like a 50-year-old father with maybe a 15-year-old son. And the father's told the son the story, and the father's old enough to maybe remember it, watching it. And I, you can tell the, the story, it's like a great bedtime story. Yes. The story's been passed down from fathers to sons to daughters. That is so great. And it's one of those rare events where you remember where you were. Mm-hmm. But if you think back, so many of the events you remember where you were, if you're old enough, Pearl Harbor, Kennedy's assassination, uh, 9-11, obviously, the Challenger blows up. Yes. All terrible. Mm. All terrible. This one, beautiful. Joyous. And to bring the story full circle for Al Michaels, uh, I worked with him on Football Night in America, and I was with him in the fall uh, when he got a message that his grandson 
Nate Cohn, who plays for the Junior Kings, was in Lake Placid and won a tournament there. Amazing. So Al calls that game, his grandson now playing in Lake Placid, winning a tournament there. And he said, uh, Nate is small, shifty. I uh, think Marty San Louis, <laughs> the next San Louis, and Al would like to wrap up his career by eventually calling his first pro game. So we'll see nice. if and when cool. that happens. Hope it happens. Be a nice way, uh, nice way to go. So Nate Cohen gets to play there. Mm -hmm. Al Michaels calls that game there, the Miracle Nice. You've been to Lake Placid? I've been there a couple times in high school. My high school went down there for a high school tournament and had a chance to play in the big rink. And, you know, I was, was I, you know, five years old when Miracle on Ice happened. So, you know, I don't remember watching it. But even being there, that weekend, and then I also taught hockey school there. When I was in university in the summer, for three weeks, we went down in the summer, lived in a hotel in little tiny Lake Placid, and went over every day to the, you know, the facility and, and, and taught hockey school there. And just being around that building, you can feel it. Like, you can feel how special it is. You can sense the history of the moment that happened there. And there, there's pictures and there's little homages to, to, to 1980 and what happened there. And even though I'm Canadian, it doesn't matter. It, it resonates, and you can feel... And just being around the town, you could sense how in 1980, just the, the spirit of that town is palpable in the building. So um, if you've not been there and you're a hockey fan, it's a pretty, pretty cool place to go. Yeah, we went, uh, we had training camp with the Flyers. We went there for a few days, Peter Laviolette being, you know, right, the big yep. American that he is. And we went there and, you know, we were doing, it was training camp, so we were doing the lines. <laughs> Not like they were doing yeah. in the movie. Again, right? <laughs> yeah, again. <laughs> Who do you play for? <laughs> and you got so, to see the movie yeah, recently, so first decided, time. Yeah, first time. I watched it two nights ago and, and you know, Al Michaels' calls were the li actual calls in the movie. That's the first time you've seen Miracle? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and a staple. <laughs> it was, uh, it was cool. And I, uh, not going to lie, I shed a, shed a tear or two, yeah. just how, just the story and everything. And, uh, it was just amazing, uh, obviously, great movie, and the whole story is uh, uh, epic. Yeah, uh, we were up there for a few years ago for Hockey Day in America, and uh, it's a cool little town, mm -hmm. and everyone describes it that way. It's accurate. It does not exactly scream major world event location, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is what's so great about it. That, the charm. Uh, yeah, and uh, the whole story, uh, going back that, you know, it wasn't on live in America, mm -hmm. and uh, people saw a tape delay. And, and the Russian game wasn't even for gold. Everyone no, thinks they beat the Russians. They're still going to come they, back and they, beat Finland. They beat Finland, yes, exactly. which, was no, which was no guarantee no, either. No, but uh, great stuff there from Al Michaels yeah. and uh, Mike Tirico. But that is it for us. Another episode of Our Line starts. Thanks so much for listening, watching, either way. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can subscribe for automatic downloads wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next time.